Well, good morning and a, a warm welcome to you, whether you're joining us here in person or whether you're joining us online. Uh, we want to welcome you and we're certainly glad that you've chosen to be a part of this morning uh, together. And I certainly counted a a great privilege to um, turn, be able to turn now to God's Word and open it with you. And if you've been with us at all over uh, recent weeks, you'll know that we're currently uh, in a series of studies in the book of Revelation. And so far we've looked at the first uh, five chapters. And most recently, in the last couple of weeks, we've um, been presented with uh, a vision of the reality of the heavenly throne room, this stunning vision of God the Father on his throne and God the Son introduced as the conquering lamb and the angelic hosts and, and a vast multitude of worshipers around the throne. And frankly, this is the, the, the point where some people stop reading the, the book of Revelation. They, they say, okay, that's, that's it. I'm going to go find a psalm or a gospel or, or some other uh, thing. Because uh, while the first five chapters aren't easy, uh, there is something straightforward about uh, the vision of Jesus, uh, the letters to seven churches, and a vision of heaven. But from chapter 6 onwards, it becomes a bit more challenging to keep up with the unfolding story of Revelation. I mean, we have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We have two beasts, two witnesses, Babylon and Jerusalem, a prostitute and a bride. All of this needs a bit more explanation, and so many people just give up. And others simply skim-read the middle of, of, of the, 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 the book with little understanding until they reach chapter 21. And my hope and our plan over these coming weeks is that we'll resist the urge to just skip over these chapters, but um, we'll be prepared, if you like, to, to dig deep into them in order to, that, that we may come to grasp something of the message that Jesus has for his church through that. Now, an important question that needs to be addressed at the outset is this. What period of salvation history do these chapters address? What period of history is being addressed? Are these chapters simply speaking about uh, the future and the future events that are to take place, as many suppose? Are they a roadmap to the end times or the last days, as they're commonly understood? How are we supposed to understand them? Well, I want to suggest to you that the period of salvation history that these chapters address is the period between Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension and his second coming. In other words, the, the period of history that the opening of the seven seals depicts is the unfolding of A.D. history between the first and the second advents of Christ. And what we'll come to discover in, in subsequent weeks is that this same period of time will also be echoed by the, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, which come later on in Revelation. And I think that most mistakes... The most mistakes that we make in interpreting Revelation stems from our failure to understand that the things recorded in this book are not describing a linear progression or timeline of future history, but they're a series of cyclical overviews of history between Jesus' first coming and second coming. 
So what happens is people often assume that the seven seals must follow one after the other, and then the trumpets must follow the seals, which then must follow, be followed then by the bowls, all kind of in a linear sequential framework. And as a result, many then try to force fit history into what they think Scripture is saying. But when we understand that the framework of these chapters is cyclical in nature, that they provide a number of recapitulations of A.D. history, if you like, what we'll discover is it's like, it's like finding the right key in a door, turning the lock, and swinging it open. So in other words... The opening of the seven seals that we're about to read in a moment isn't to be understood as a sequence of consecutive waves of judgment coming upon the earth in the future. But they are to be understood as describing things that have taken place, are taking place, and will take place altogether throughout A.D. history. And this then frees us from the assumption that it's... That it's that what's recorded in these chapters is simply focused on the years immediately before the second coming. For as Jesus says clearly in a parallel passage in Mark 13, he says these things must happen, but the end is still not yet. These things are, 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 are but the beginning birth pangs. So simply put, we need to understand that the opening of the seven seals that we're about to read, they don't depict some future coming events, future coming judgments, but they're a depiction of what has and will continue to take place through the whole of A.D. history until Jesus returns. I found Ian e. Paul's commentary on Revelation very helpful in summarizing this. He says this, for John's first readers, these verses described a world that they know and live in, a world marked by periodic famine and shortage, one of chronic disease and early death, a world in which earthquakes bring sudden destruction and devastation. John is not yet disclosing to them the unknown future, but revealing the reality about the present. The imperial myth of peace and prosperity is exposed as just that, a myth. There is only one who is sovereign, the one by whose permission the horsemen are released to allow humanity to reap what it is sown. And this one is not the emperor. And it is he alone, not the emperor, who can offer answers to the crises that face humanity. He alone can usher in the true age of peace and prosperity. And so then beginning uh, with chapter 6, let's now read as the seven seals are opened by the Lamb. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Then he opened the second seal. I heard the second, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. 
When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you, before you will judge and before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Ishkar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So quite a vision, I'm sure uh, you'll agree. Uh, the Lamb takes the scroll and immediately begins to uh, open its seals. And each seal, when open, releases its symbolism. And with the first four seals, we are introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And John first sees a white horse whose rider has a bow and who is wearing a crown. And he goes out as victor to conquer. Now, exactly who this rider is has generated much discussion and debate and disagreement. Is it a picture of Christ himself ruling and reigning? Or is it some sort of satanic counterfeit that comes disguised in order to deceive and destroy? Now, now to, be, to be honest, this is what, the one part of the vision here that I own a measure of uncertainty. Uh, quite frankly, I think a compelling case can be made uh, either way. In fact, the two commentators that I trust and rely on the most come uh, to opposite conclusions in terms of the identity uh, of, of this rider. And, and we don't have time in this context to get into all of the arguments and details but I'll tell you, if push comes to shove, if I'm forced to plant my flag somewhere, I'm probably going to lean towards the view that would argue that the rider on the white horse does indeed symbolize Christ himself. And, and if that is indeed the case, I, I love how William Hendrickson sums up the importance of this first seal. Our Lord Jesus Christ is conquering now. His cause is going forward. He is exercising his universal kingship. By means of the word and spirit, the testimony and tears of his disciples, his own intercession and their prayers, the angels of heaven and armies of earth, the trumpets of justice, of judgment, and the bulls of wrath, our God is riding forth victoriously, conquering and to conquer. Now this white horse that appears with the opening of the first seal is followed then with, with the opening of the second seal and the appearance of the red horse whose rider takes from the earth even the superficial appearance of peace. He brings bloodshed and war. And it's very likely that this isn't just war in general, war generically, but it's specifically, uh, it's speaking of war against believers to the per those who are persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And with the opening of the third seal comes the arrival of the black horse, which signifies uh, economic inequality between the rich and the poor, ordinary commodities, the staples, uh, staple diet of the poor shoots up in price, whereas luxury items like oil and wine, they stay the same. 
allowing the rich to become, more, get, you know, get more rich at the expense of the poor. And again, it's likely, as one commentator puts it, that this speaks directly to the poverty of believers forced to live at the margins of society, even as their persecutors enjoy the oil and wealth and wine of worldly wealth. And then lastly comes the pale horse with the opening of the fourth seal, carrying death on its back and Hades in his wake, which represents the ever-present judgments of war, famine, and plague. And then comes the fifth seal, which is the response of the martyrs. It's the response of those who have died for their faith, those who have felt the effects of these these, uh, earlier seals. And they've died for their faith. And and they cry out, how long? How long, O Lord, until there's justice again for those who have been killed for our faith? And heaven replies a little longer. There's still others that will give their life for following Christ. A little longer. There's a little while yet. And then the sixth seal is where the world suddenly realizes that there is a final judgment to be reckoned with. And the illustration here is is of one running to the mountains. Very often in Scripture, mountains were seen as a place of safety, and so kings and people of importance and the poor alike will run to the mountains for safety. And really, you could say that the sixth seal describes the second coming of Jesus and the seventh seal, his final judgment. And Jesus wants us to gasp in surprise and horror at what is in store for the unrepentant. The day is coming, he says, when he will finish breaking open the seals of history and will return to wrap up this present age. And at that point, every eye will see him for who he truly is, just as John saw him as he really is in chapter 1. And they will tremble and cry out before the wrath of the Lamb. They will shudder and, and shake with fear when they see Jesus, the Lamb of God. They will, they will try to hide, but there, there is nothing that can hide them from His wrath. And that's why, you see, we need to read the revelation of Jesus Christ and let it shape our picture of Jesus just as much as the four Gospels. Because otherwise, we'll be in danger of mistaking, mistaking Jesus' meekness for weakness and treating him as this, he is someone less than he really is. And so chapter 6 rightly finishes with the phrase, who can stand this? Who can stand before this one? And if chapter 6 is about judgment, chapter 7 is about protection. Who can stand? Well, this is who can stand. Those who are sealed. Who can stand? Those that are sealed. And verse 1 to 8 of chapter 7 describes people being sealed. Right? John looks and sees angels holding back the four winds. They're saying trouble is about to flood across the earth. And the angels are holding it back and saying we need to wait. We need to to wait until all of the servants of God had been sealed on their foreheads. And and, and the picture is of of the angel saying, trouble and affliction and persecution is coming to the world and we need to hold it back for a moment because before we allow the trouble to be unleashed on the earth, which is going to happen inevitably, 
We need to make sure that God's servants are sealed on their forehead. It's an image of a seal, of God's seal of ownership and protection. And we'll look at at, at how that works in a moment. And then what John hears is a list of all the people who've been sealed. 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 and so on. And it's a list of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Now, we need to figure out what on earth's going on here because that verse or two has been highly debated and people get very excited about it and some people have built their entire religion around it and in the case of, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, that's the case. And others have said, I don't want to build my religion around it. I have no idea, I have no earthly idea what it means. I'll just ignore it. And that's not a good idea either. And so we need to understand what's going on here. And so John first of all, is hearing the people being sealed. So he can't see anything at this point, but what he can hear is 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. And, 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 and so we need to understand, what does it mean to be sealed? That's what's happening, happening the, the sealing of the servants of God. What on earth does it mean to be sealed? So, Right here I have a, a jar of applesauce that I uh, made a couple of, of weeks ago. And, and what I do is I put a lid on it and I write on it, which first of all says, this is Daryl Brooker's applesauce. Woe betide anybody who tries to pass this off as their own, right? This, this is not Safeways, you know, that kind of runny and insipid-like stuff. This is, this is Daryl Brooker's definitive last word on applesauce. And I seal it as if to say, this is mine. It's my seal of ownership, my seal of identity, my seal of identification and possession. The other thing that the seal does is it preserves the applesauce so it lasts a very, very long time. I mean, you open this months from now, even years, and it'll be absolutely fresh because of this immaculate seal that I've placed on it. Because a seal also preserves that which it seals, doesn't it? So a seal is something that, which says, I own this, it's mine. It's my stamp of identification. I, I am guarding it and protecting it and preserving it. It's protecting it from being infected by things that would come in and try to, to make the applesauce not taste so nice and grow you know, green furry bits on top. I have preserved it and I've put my seal on it. And this is an example of the kind of picture that John is giving here. The people of God are being sealed. They're being protected. That's what's being done in Revelation 7. The servants of God, whoever they are, are being sealed. So the angels are holding back the winds saying, we mustn't let the trouble be unleashed yet because before we do, we need to make sure that the servants of God have been sealed in the sense of owned and possessed and identified as gods and protected and preserved so that nothing bad will ever happen to them. Actually, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that nothing bad will happen to them. It means that when bad things happen to them, God will preserve and protect them and not allow it to overwhelm them or destroy them which is a very 
biblical uh, image. Paul talks about um, the seal, doesn't he? He talks about the seal of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, he puts it like this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's a seal which says, this person is God's. And which says, I am now going to protect that person. No matter what trouble or hardship comes at them, I will preserve them through it. So that's what the sealing is. It's, it's a seal of ownership and protection. Now at this point, you, we have to ask who the 144,000 are because we now think, okay, that, that, that sounds nice. I like the idea of being sealed by God. Uh, you, you are being owned by God. You are protected by God despite what troubles may come. I, I'd like to be among that number. And as I said, there's been a, a lot of discussion and sometimes fiery debate in church history about, the, about who these people are, 12,000 from this tribe, this tribe, this tribe. Who are these people who get sealed? Is it ethnic Jews? Are ethnic Jews um, sealed? And, and Christians are sort of standing nearby watching. Um, is it some type of, of, of super Christian? So, so, so some of you are going, well, I'm going to get sealed then. And the person next to you is going, I don't think they're going to get sealed. It's that kind of vibe. I don't think they pray enough. I, I don't think it's them. Some of us might think like that. Maybe there's a group of super Christians who are sealed, and the rest of us are, are standing by in the great thought going, salvation belongs to our God. And these other ones are going, yeah, I'm in. I'm part of the 144. And, 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 and people over here are just going, hail, all glory. Is that the kind of vibe? Is that what's going on? Is it super Christians? Is it ethnic Jews? Is it Jehovah's Witnesses? Because that's the way the Jehovah's Witnesses would read this text. And actually, I think what's happening is a significant level of misunderstanding has come uh, because what people have done is, and I think this happens uh, with this book a lot, is that people fail to read the book in the way that the book is intended and not notice the way that seeing and hearing fit together in this book. So let me take you back two chapters to what we did last week and hopefully show you what I think is going on here. So two chapters ago, in chapter five, we were looking at the lion and the lamb. And do you remember what happened was, if you were here last week, uh, what happens is John hears the the idea about the lion of the tribe of Judah who is conquered. And he's not seeing anything at this point. He just hears this voice. The lion has won. And then it says, and I looked, and behold, I saw a lamb as though slaughtered. Remember we did that last week? So he hears something, And then he looks, and behold, it's something that represents the same reality, but it's a different picture for the same thing. And I think that's what's happening, what's going on here in Revelation 7. What's going on here is John is hearing about the the 12,000 sealed from every tribe. But he can't see them. It's just what he hears. But then he looks, and behold, he sees this massive, multi-ethnic multitude from every tribe, people, language, and nation, all worshiping the Lamb together. 
So that what he hears and what he sees are two ways of describing the same reality. Do you see, do you see what I mean? So he hears lion, sees lamb, hears 12,000 from each tribe, sees a massive multitude from every nation. Do you see the parallel? The parallel is that what he hears and what he sees are referring to the same group of people, but they're two different pictures of it. Just like the lion and the lamb are two different pictures for Jesus, the 144,000 and the massive multitude are two different pictures for the servants of God, the redeemed. In other words, the 144,000 are you lot. The 144,000 are every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, united together, having been sealed by God and preserved and given a stamp of ownership over your lives and protected through the troubles that will come to you and guarded by God's power until he returns. That's the 144, who the 144,000 are. It's you. And it's all the redeemed of God throughout the nations and throughout the ages. Wait, don't let the trouble start because God wants to first mark out all the ones who are his, who love him and serve him, who are redeemed by Jesus. He wants to protect them when the trouble comes so that they can stand firm. That's what's going on in Revelation 7, 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 to 12, John sees the outworking of what he's heard. So he's heard this list, and it's, a, and it's picture language. You know, 12,000 is picture language in the, in the Bible. Again, almost all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. So a 1,000 is just their massive number. It's like their version of a billion, because they didn't have millions and billions. They didn't need them. But, you know, they would say something like a thousand times a thousand or even 10,000 times 10,000 because thousands was the biggest number that they would generally use. So 12,000 meant a fullness of redeemed people. And 144,000 meant an absolute completion and fullness of every servant of God all over the place. So that's how I'm reading the symbol. It doesn't mean that there's only 144,000 individuals, which means that by the time you've added up the Christians in California, you haven't got much space for anyone else. It's their way of saying a massive number, a fullness of redeemed people serving from every tribe. So that's what he hears, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, all the way down. Then he looks And the explanation of the vision is given in what he sees, which is verses 9 to 12. Then I looked, and before me, a great multitude that no one could count, standing before the throne with palm branches in their hands, singing, Salvation belongs to our God from every tribe and people and language and nation. A massive, multi-ethnic multitude worshiping God. That's what he sees. So what does Jesus want us to grasp from this sight of the 144,000. Well, first, he wants us to know that however bad the trials of AD history may be, he has clearly marked those he has redeemed and has placed them under his secure hand of protection. I mean, we may even need to, to, to lay down our lives for the gospel, as many have and many still do in this world, But Satan and even death itself cannot snatch us out of his hand. His electing love is upon us. We are safe and secure no matter what we face. 
also in this picture of 144,000, he wants us to know that he will save all those that the Father has given them him, and he, and he will not fail to save a single one who turns to him. You see, these symbolic numbers are perfect. They're round numbers because there's not one that is missing. And he also wants us to know that the number of those who will be saved is going to be large, a great multitude that no one can count. And it captures the diversity of every tribe and language and nation. Diversity is a very high value in heaven, and it needs to be a high value for the church as well. I mean, where else? Other than the church of Jesus Christ, would you find such diversity in age and background and class and ethnic, um, ethnicity? Nowhere else would people of such differences choose to come together. And it's a massive testimony to anyone who walks in. It speaks, it declares something. It, it declares that Jesus is real ultimately because God has not only reconciled us to himself, but he has is, he is, he is reconciled us one to another and he's broken down all barriers that divide us and keep us apart. Now listen, Satan would be overjoyed if he could use passages like this that we're looking at and, and, and say, and use it to distract people into cults or to convince them that God's great plan is to airlift them from planet Earth and leave a remnant of Jews to evangelize the post-rapture Earth for them. But listen, that is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He is telling us that he has marked us to dwell on this earth in the midst of this age as agents, as, as agents scattered throughout the world and the earth to worship him and to suffer for him and to preach the gospel and to win the great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, group, and language. That's what Jesus' vision is. And then in verses 13 to 17, what happens is an elder explains that these are the people who've come through the great tribulation that the world threw at them. They were preserved by God. These are they who, who, who came through the great tribulation, the kind of turbulence and persecution and affliction and sickness and all these other things that many of us have come through and that we will all persevere through if we're in Christ. These are they who've come through the great tribulation. They are those who have stood firm because God sealed them in the face of suffering and difficulty. And now they gather around with the lamb at the center of their throne as their shepherd. And the lamb now says, you don't have to fight anymore. You've had to stand firm. You've had to contend. You've, you've had to take punches. Now there's no more fighting. Now I will give you the water of life that will satisfy you. You will now be full of joy. There will, there will now be no more weeping. Sorrow has been cast away forever. There's no room now for any more suffering because I have made all things new. I love Revelation 17, 7, 17, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb who is slain, the lamb who is worthy to open the seals. Yes, he is the lamb, but he is also their shepherd. And, and a shepherd's primary responsibility is for the safety and welfare of the flock. He protects the sheep. He protects the people from wolves and predators. He brings security. And in a moment, we're going to break bread together. And in doing so, we, we celebrate Jesus crucified, risen, and ascended. And, and, and we're going to celebrate that also, that we're, we're part of a people, a, a very different people from different ages and backgrounds, races, and cultures. And as we do, I want us to do it with two themes in mind. 
two themes in mind. The theme that there is a lamb that was slain. But that, that same, at the same time, that lamb has become the shepherd that protects his flock. And so whatever you're facing, and compared to some people in the world, maybe we're not facing um, as much as they are, but life here at times can be really challenging as well, can't it? But you need to remember you're not alone. You're protected. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are saved in Jesus Christ. You have a lamb who's become a shepherd that protects. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as we read of these seals of judgment that we need not fear for we are safe and secure. We thank you that we have been sealed by you, that we have your mark of ownership and protection upon us, and that we are now numbered and counted among the 144,000, that great multitude that no one can number from every clan, nation, people, group, and language, all united to the praise of God the Father and to the Lamb who sit upon the throne. We praise you. We thank you for such a glorious gospel. We thank you that this, for the salvation that is a gift to us. It is not something we have done or could do, but it is a gift to us given through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.